Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex, long play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau Hammond. You might remember the name Jean Proust from our third episode of season one, Why is Sex Still Taboo? Jean is a postdoctoral teaching fellow at Fordham University and an adjunct professor at New York University and Pace University in the United States. She has studied philosophy and visual arts in Bordeaux, Berlin and Paris, and her PhD dissertation at the Pantheon Sorbonne focused on the pathologies of willpower. But her interests are wide, including ethics, philosophy of technologies, bioethics, feminist theory and aesthetics. Jean is an advocate for widening the philosophical education beyond academic frontiers. She regularly gives public talks in philosophy and produces her own podcast, Can You Fill It?, which aims to make philosophical texts and ideas accessible to a wider audience. In this episode, Jean and I examine taboo, the important role transgression plays in desire, the trivialization of sexuality, and the need for more nuanced conversations about taboo and sexuality. Jean speaks about the need to acquire the intellectual tools to help us apply critical thinking to the norms we live according to. As someone who speaks her mind with eloquence and consideration, I see no one better to discuss applying these tools to sexuality with. Please enjoy our full interview. Taboo actually has a Polynesian origin. It was imported by uh, Captain James Cook, and he speaks about that word in A Voyage to the Pacific Ocean, which is one of his books. And it's interesting because the translation he gives of it is actually uh, a, a bit ambiguous. At the same time, it means the sacred, the inviolable, but also the forbidden. So what we keep today, I would say, as the meaning of the word taboo is this notion of forbidden, of banned, a prohibition mainly of an action that is imposed by a social custom. So it's a prohibition of an action, but also derivatively, I would say, of a conversation about that action, right? So a taboo is not only something that is not acceptable to do, but it's also something that is not acceptable to say or to mention. And so the roles of taboos in society and the reasons why they exist, you know, could be very diverse. But what you, what we have in mind directly is this idea of a, a protective measure, something to avoid danger for the community. So taboos against homicide, for instance, or incest have, uh, you know, obvious uh, social benefits. And really taboos are here to maintain a certain type of social cohesion. Now, one problem that might come with that is the fact that this social cohesion might be in favor of the people in power, of the people who have a voice. So they are the one deciding what should be considered taboo. And that is why taboos are often associated with conservatism or conservatist ideas, 
But actually, I think it's a misconception because even for people who claim to be open-minded and uh, open to discuss anything, there is always some taboos, you know, somewhere. Unless you're an absolute nihilist, a moral skeptic to the max, right? All people, including progressive people, as they call themselves, or people who see themselves as liberals, they will have taboos as well against racism, for instance, against sexism also. So those are also taboos. And to make all taboos disappear, you have no choice but replacing these old taboos to enforce new ones, right? So clearly taboos are not a bad thing per se, I would say. It all depends on what taboos we decide to impose and for what reasons. Are there any cultures that you're aware of where taboo is is not in play and where sort of there aren't sanctions against behaviour or speaking in certain ways? Because it's pretty hard to imagine that that would ever be the case in any society, right? It is extremely, it, it's, it's almost impossible. It's like imagining a society in which there would be no morals at all of any sorts, no values at all. Even for somebody who pretends to be an absolute relativist, you know, an absolute nihilist, uh, thinking that there are no such thing as absolute values, there is a point where it would be very hypocritical to, uh, to actually keep defending that position. For instance, if I see, you know, a woman that is being stoned to death uh, by people uh, who think that she committed adultery because she was raped. I think even the most you know, open-minded, tolerant, cultural relativists would still be quite in shock, right? So there is, I think here, a, a little bit of a hypocrisy to think that any society could be without taboos. And sometimes taboos can have actually a very progressive effect, you know, indeed. Well, it's, it's like you say with regards to racism and, and things like that. Not all taboos are necessarily a negative thing. But there's, I guess there is this kind of framing that we have now that they are bad. Like there's quite pejorative language surrounding the discussion of taboo. And I, I kind of wonder how that's emerged and, and why it's emerged. I think because of, uh, of this idea that, again, taboos initially in, in certain, you know, society with a, with a strict hierarchy of people who are in power tended to be, you know, uh, built in favor of those people in power. And very often the people in power in that sense might have been people who defend conservative ideas. Look at religion, for instance, who had a very important authoritarian role, right, in the development of Western societies, you know, since the Middle Ages on, basically. It has been seen, I think it's still in a Western culture, we tend to associate the word taboo to some kind of almost religious censorship, which is obviously way wider than that. It's not, it's not the case. It's, a taboo is a way wider thing than that. Mm, mm. And I guess for you, where do you see taboo fitting within the, the realm of desire? Because I know that's something that you've spoken to quite a lot and you've done sort of research into desire and these things, and they seem sort of inextricably linked to me. Yes, absolutely, I agree. I think that... The relationship between taboo and sexuality, desire, intimacy, uh, is something that is uh, easily understandable if we look at the nature of sexual desire, specifically. While it's very easy for us to identify objects of our needs, they are in the external world, I am thirsty, I'm going to drink a glass of water, it's right there, right? But our desires, and specifically, I would say, our sexual desires are not exact, exactly in this world. They are, for a large part, 
a matter of personal elaboration and intimate mental construction. So there is a sort of inner conversation within our brain between the most primitive and deepest sensation that we have as animals, right? And also our attempts to represent it to ourselves. And so in a situation, for instance, in a you know, random sexual encounter, the body I have in front of me, the, the person that I'm about to have sex with, for instance, might just be the vessel of my sexual desire. The real trigger for my desire resides in the fantasies that I build around it. So maybe it doesn't make sense in, in that sense to say that we desire someone, but we desire more, or a specific individual, but we desire more specific features or stories, scenarios, behaviors that we attribute to this body, that we project onto that subject, that person. So now, where are these specific features, you know, triggering our sexual desire coming from, right? Well, some come from our personal experience based on our memory. Descartes, for instance, speaks about this, uh, this girl he met when he was a teenager who had a squint in her eyes. And after that, and he, fall in, he fell in love with her for other reasons. But then after that, whenever he would meet a girl that had a slight issue with her eyes, he would fall in love again or feel a sexual attraction. So they can come from our personal experience, right? But they can also and mostly come from a collective construction, mental objects that are biologically actually determined in our, in our species as animals, no? and, but also, of course, culturally. And that's where taboos come into play because we create for sexual pleasure, these scenarios, these situations, these stories. And this erotic imagination sometimes might very well contradict our ethical positions. So, for instance, you can very well be a, you know, a strong feminist, but enjoy being treated, or at least fantasize, about being treated as a means and an object being used, etc. So that's, there is a very good book that I recommend, actually, which became quite, a, quite a, a feminist Bible in France, but hasn't had the same uh, success in other countries, called King Kong Theory from Virginie Despentes. And she's really very blunt. She's not an academic. She speaks very clearly. And I, I, I like that. It's very refreshing. And she speaks about the fantasy of rape, for instance, and something we don't speak about easily. So why do these fantasies stimulate our sexual desire? I don't know. Some people say it's because... They let go of our inhibitions, they reassure ourselves, they help us go past our insecurities or they compensate our frustration. But also I think just because transgression itself can be very exciting. I look at these fantasies as, you know, cerebral masturbation of sorts, right? Brain caresses, so to say. They are a crucial trigger for orgasm in a lot of individuals, not necessarily to compensate for the lack of attraction. I, I don't think it's... a uh, necessarily to fill a gap or as a you know, coping mechanism because of a dissatisfaction in your couple or something like that. It can also, it can be used to focus and maintain arousal when you, when you are in a sexual uh, act, for instance. So this internal hallucination of sorts can shape themselves according to many norms and many taboos, which act as kind of normative counter norms. So in a way, we're just looking at them. We know it's wrong somehow, but that triggers the, the desire in a way. Yeah, it's almost like a, a chicken and an egg scenario, right? Like what comes first, the, the desire or the taboo? It's, it's pretty hard to, to extrapolate that out. <laughs> right, right. And then where, you know, how these taboos, are these taboos 
about, for instance, you know, the, the, the taboo of rape. That's an interesting, so this rape phantasm that a lot of women have, actually. Is it something we should feel guilty about? Is it something we should just uh, disregard? Is it something we should speak about? Is it something we should be ashamed of in any way, shape or form? And this is, this is a type of question that I think should be raised and maybe try to see if we want to reorient, so to say, the way we fantasize, the way we build and shape our sexual desires. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, this isn't a topic that's often covered in philosophical debate. Why do you think that is? And why do you think philosophers often shy away from these kind of topics? Alors, we philosophers indeed don't talk much about sex. <laughs> it's always surprised me because it's such an essential dimension of human existence. And when you look at what philosophy is supposed to be, it is supposed to be about exploring what makes human existence. What are the deep things that we deal with as humans, right? There is an omnipresence of sexual thoughts within us. And even certain philosophers didn't deny that. Diderot, for instance, said famously that there is always a bit of testicle at the bottom of our most sublime feelings. <laughs> so philosophers are human beings, right? And so they think about sex, but they too are subjected to the norms imposed by the taboos. And as I said, taboos also have to do with what is not acceptable to say or to discuss. If you are an academic, which most philosophers are, you're supposed to be objective. You're supposed to be rational. There is really no place for desire. Our desire is supposed to obey reason. Desire is always this very suspicious strength or force of excess, of hubris, to which we're supposed to you know, oppose control and temperance. Plato, for instance, saw sexual attraction as a mere means, uh, you know, almost a degrading means to access something higher, the good, the beautiful. Aristotle didn't mention it much at all. <laughs> Epicurus or the Stoics warn us against what sexual desire can, can do to us. Sexu uh, all, the, all the Christian philosophers obviously condemn it. And here there is uh, really a, not only a suspicion, but a, a rejection against the dangerous pleasures uh, of sex, which only purpose is supposed to be procreation. And here I, I actually remember uh, the philosopher uh, Schopenhauer speaks about, uh, uh, speaks about sexual desire and pleasure just as means towards generation and procreation. A trick of nature, he says, because nature wants to make sure that our species survive, it makes sexual pleasure a specifically intense one, right? So more exciting than eating and drinking to ensure that the individual survives. So Kant, Sartre, you know, to go a bit further in the history of philosophy, also have a critical view about sexual desire. You have some exceptions, just like Montaigne, for instance, who, who does say that, you know, we should, uh, there is a suspect silence in philosophy regarding sexual desire. Bataille speaks about it. The Marquis de Sade also speaks about it, but that would be a whole other debate because he, he went as far as celebrating rape and raping, you know, babies or stuff like that. So I'm just going to let it slide for now. But so you see that this ban over desire and specifically over sexual desire transpires really through a very long tradition in Western ethics from the Greeks to fairly recently, even if today actually it's not really spoken of. So... I think there are really three reasons if I want to sum it up. One is because philosophers might consider it as obscene, indecent, so out of moral reasons. 
Two, because it's maybe too trivial, right? Because it's not worth their, worthy of their attention. It's a, it's a despise more than a suspicion, you know, to they see it as an unworthy subject. Do you that's think that that's maybe because historically philosophers haven't grappled with the subject? So because it's just not part of the discourse to to take a step away from that would be beneath them or, as you say, sort of a bit risque. Right. Maybe by by lack of habits, that would be an interesting point. I, I think it also has to do maybe with uh, the fact that sexuality is pulling us down towards bestiality, animality, whereas what is supposed to be the specific function of human beings is specifically rationality. And so the philosophical activity is supposed to elevate us above this speciality, this animality, and make us disregard. And then there would be also another reason, which I think has to do with the philosophical language we use. The intellectual tools, the conceptual tools that philosophers use are sometimes actually very inappropriate to grasp experiences like the erotic experience in general. It is difficult to produce a discourse about sexuality because it's such a personal, intimate experience, bodily experience, and it's very opaque. It's very impenetrable as a, as a topic. And it escapes this way the rigorous, you know, logical concepts that philosophers tend to build. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kind of like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalised selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. Let's talk about transgression. Yes. <laughs> what transgression is and whether it's a necessary component of sex and, and all of these things. Mm-hmm. If you look at the very vast, extraordinary variety of cultures and what is considered sexually desirable, even if it tends to be very much westernized and, you know, we tend to value more globally, things such as slimness and you know, generous forms for women on certain parts of her body and not on others, for instance. Even, even in the sexual behaviors itself, the clothes, the beliefs, the gestures, etc., they are do's and don'ts all the time, right? Now, my question is, are these don'ts always bad things? Is it immoral to play with these taboos? Is it immoral to fantasize, again, about incest or rape or sexual objectification, or adultery, etc. So here I'm embarrassed to say I don't have a clear answer to that, right? But what I find, <laughs> I mean, it's true, it's, I'm thinking here, I'm not here to give any lessons, I have no idea. But I find it interesting to explore where fantasies about taboos are coming from, and if we can and should potentially reshape them, and if so, how? So that's basically here the questions I'm asking. So 
it sounds to me very counterproductive and, and quite ridiculous, to be frank, to go towards people, adult people, right, and force them uh, to spit out their deepest fantasies and then to judge them as immoral if they don't conform to certain rules of consent, equality, respect about the partners, etc. So if they basically don't make sexism or submission a taboo, for instance, right? It is a bit ridiculous to just want to install some kind of some kind of policy or some kind of normativity against another type of normativity, which has been the puritanist kind of kind of normativity that clearly needs to be, you know, what was uh, was really overwhelming. But I'm not sure this new normativity is, you know, is uh, is as simple as that. I think there is something to be, you know, to be discussed here for sure. Do you think that often people that are trying to impose this new form of normativity are actually aware that that is what is happening? Or is it because that is the kind of the framework and the paradigm that they've existed in? So it's the only one they know how to work from? Yes, probably. There is some conditioning, some social conditioning and cultural conditioning at play within the way we shape our sexual desires, right? But in a way also, and this is, I know, a controversial point, but basically I I agree with the fact that the way we speak about sex, but also the way we think about sex, the way we fantasize about sex, is controlled by a network of powers. Foucault said it very well in his history of sexuality. Political powers are at play, religious powers, economical powers as well. But these controls can also stimulate in turn our arousal by building fantasies about what is doomed abnormal or unnatural sexual behavior, right? So the taboos of each society contributes or might contribute greatly to give an orientation to our desires. Conventions shape the sexual desire of the society's member who obeys them or who disobeys them. It's really in the folds of all of these taboos that transgression explodes, that really eros can take off and that there is a supplement of pleasure that comes with it. I, you know, you might have heard this, uh, this quote by Bataille who speaks about this uh, delicious taste of sin, right? And there is, there is something to be said uh, about that, right? So the various social taboos might very well be what actually increases the eroticism of certain practices that are seen as particularly stimulating, not despite but because of their being forbidden or transgressive. And here, shall I say, I know that there has been some other interviews before regarding this topic and my research on this. And I think that uh, there was a common misinterpretation that people can find in these interviews. It's not quite the same to say sexual taboos might stimulate desire than saying that sexual freedom destroys desire, which is what... uh, has been quoted from me, apparently, in in other interviews. So I'm not saying that sexual freedom destroys desire, even if I can explain more what I meant by that. But I definitely can say that sexual taboos can stimulate desire, though all sexuality doesn't have to be based on transgression. I don't think, like, the more transgressive you are, the better sex you will have. I'm I'm not sure about that. I'm just thinking that the imagination can exalt 
because of heavy taboo. And it's not that it has to be one or, or the other, I think. You can have sexual freedom and experience transgression in the way that you don't necessarily have to be repressed to, to experience transgression. But I do think that as a, a culture, we're so binary now in the way that we think about things that we have landed in this place that it's it's one or the other. You either have the taboos and you have the transgression or you have the sexual freedom and they can't coexist. But that doesn't seem particularly uh, nuanced to me in terms of understanding how we actually experience these things. You have to be free to a degree to experience transgression, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I I think here actually as a as something to bring into the picture whenever we think about these questions, because of the lack of literature in philosophical texts regarding sex, I think there is a lot to be said about autobiographical narratives. So you can find that, for instance, in the book I mentioned uh, by Virginie Despentes called King Kong Theory, but also an interesting book uh, to look at might be uh, The Sexual Life of Catherine M. by Catherine Millet, who speaks about all sorts of transgression and also about the way she lived her sexual life in a very uh, non-conformist way. And and he's not ashamed of of saying so. And I think that is very informative to just have access to all these different experiences, even if it might be sometimes a bit shocking. And indeed, when Catherine Millet wrote that book as a testimony, it's always interesting to, to look at it and just to explore with more pieces of different experiences coming from various women, preferably from various also cultures, if possible, and also from men. It doesn't have to be only about a woman. I know women have a lot to say, and, and of course, I'm very much for that. But I think it would be very interesting to, to speak to, to men and ask them you know, how they think about all these scripts that might come from pornographic viewing sometimes and how it might echo in their sexual experience if they, you know, if it's it's something that they question or not, if it's something that they need as a trigger for their sexual desire in order to to be performant. Also, what kind of performance is being expected from them? You know, and all these things that are also very interesting on a masculinity perspective, I would say. Yeah, it's hard to find men commenting in that in this space. I've really struggled to find people. Really? Unfortunately. Yeah. It's early days. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I also wanted to dive into was how does this impact public discourse and the way we sort of relate to each other? And I know you've spoken about sort of sex positivity and this idea that everything should be up for discussion and on the table and whether this is something that is good for desire, bad for desire, where does this kind of sit? Right. So it's just interesting to me, this this idea about public discourse and making the speech about sex more public, more open, etc. So for 20 centuries, there has been basically a demonization of sexuality by Christianism. And I'm speaking here, obviously, about just the Western world, huh? but, it's, you know, after these 20 centuries of Puritanism, so to say, there is kind of a turnaround in the 60s and the 70s with a banalization, I would say, as if making love was now just a totally insignificant, trivial thing, just like having a drink or getting a massage or something, right? So here we're, I think, jumping from one mistake to another, actually. So before I get to why I think the second thing is also a mistake, I'm just going to make a few remarks 
to nuance this. So first of all, we should not be too quick to interpret the whole Judeo-Christian religion as a radical condemnation of carnal desire, because it's, it's not true. You see even in the Bible, huh, the, the Song of the Songs is a beautiful celebration of, of sexuality. So it's, it's obviously a generalization here. And on the other side also, when I speak about this sexual liberation of the 60s and the 70s, we should be very careful to not consider this sexual liberation too naively, right? Because to what point do we really allow liberation? In reality, it's very normative. Again, we don't escape it. Is pedophilia okay now? Is zoophilia okay now? Probably not. You know, rape okay now. So it's, it's not exactly that we can't liberate all the sexual practices. It was not this kind of liberation. And also, and that's my point about the public discourse and how, you know, there is something almost a bit pushy in asking everybody to be open about speaking about sexuality, I think it's, it's sad to see that now you're not cool somehow if you are not comfortable with your own nudity or speaking about sex. You know, there is this judgment upon people who don't feel comfortable speaking about sex and even less when asked to exhibit their sexual being because we're obviously sexual beings. Maybe not. Why force this omnipresence of sexual illusions around us already? So that is, what kind of openness is that about sex if it's coercive in a way, right? Which is, and, it's, it's kind of, it's ironic because really that's what a lot of the people promoting sex positivity are trying to eliminate and are against, apparently. Right, right, absolutely. So it's, it's, it's really pushing somehow the private towards the public and instill, I have to say very often, a very conventional way. Making sex more public often ends up promoting mainstream pseudo-transgression. And, you know, it's not asking any relevant questions about why we feel a certain way in regards to our sexual desires and fantasies. Making sex accessible like this with immediate gratification and, and this sexiness consumerism I think actually kills the, the possibilities of fantasies, of I mean, imagination, of real fructuous imagination, but also about real discussion regarding all this normativity that is still at play, even within a liberal society about sex. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, an interesting question to ask how many people's fantasies now are kind of truly their own versus what they've been fed. I think this idea of imagination that you're you're speaking to is is interesting because how many people are genuinely kind of sexually imaginative when they're being fed fantasies all the time, but fantasies that are within the bounds of what is deemed okay and appropriate. Right, exactly. And then there is this whole, you know, I mean, we could obviously speak about Pornography at some point, right, which is a whole other topic, I guess, but definitely is part of, you know, the way our, our imaginative world is being definitely shaped for the, the better or the worst. And, and here, I, it's, it's difficult for me to, to have a position between what we call the anti-porn feminism, feminism with people like Dworkin or McKinnon and the, the feminists who call them, you know, pro-sex, which I don't think Dworkin and McKinnon are anti-sex. <laughs> I think they're saying something else, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to actually find a middle ground between these two very strong positions within feminism. Why, why do you think that is? Because in a way, I, I think it's difficult not to hear what, uh, what people like Dworkin and McKinnon have to say when they say that 
you know, if you look at, uh, at pornography, very often you're going to think that it's a component of sexual socialization in a way that subordinates uh, women, that objectifies women, that endorses degradation, humiliation regarding women. And I mean, in the mainstream pornography that you find, free pornography on Pornhub or stuff like that, very often, indeed, all the scripts are very similar. The scene is pretty much always the same. And it's true that very often the woman is being put in a, uh, in a submissive place. I'm speaking here about heteronormative mainstream pornography. Now, of course, there are other ways of doing pornography. And I think it's, it's definitely an option to worthy of being explored. I do think that. But it's, it's difficult. And I think really, if we should somehow try to speak about, again, like the, the, the public discourse, right, regarding sex, I think what would be really interesting is to look on the side of, of education, really. So, you know, the only thing that is related to sexuality that most of the new generation of kids, like you, we're probably the same generation, but speaking about people who are, you know, 10 to 15 years old right now, I mean, the only thing they have access to is a source of information about sex is internet porn. Is precisely this mainstream porn that I just described, right? So is the access to porn per se an issue? I'm not sure. I personally don't think so, whatever. But then you would have to give these kids the mental tools, the intellectual tools to question and understand the specificity of the very staged representation that they are watching. And so heteronormative and sexy stereotypes you find in mainstream pornography, I, I do not think that imposing new norms in a paternalistic way, you know, patronizing adults and forcing them not to watch mainstream porn will probably work. You know, I, I don't think it will work. But I am convinced that there is a need for heavy work to be done in sex education. I worked for, uh, for uh, I think, six years. I was a middle school and high school teacher. It is very scary. Yeah, I can imagine. I honestly, I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> but precisely my point, it should be something really implemented at school. Yeah. At school, people might speak about procreation, if they're lucky, and STDs, right? But they don't explore topics such as, you know, respect of the other partner or very little and not, not in most public schools. And they don't interrogate what is sexual uh, you know, orientation, the historicity behind it the various nature of intimate relationships and sexual practices. And also, they don't question the language that is being used to describe sexual acts or sexual organs. Words are never innocent, right? And they build artificial categories, which then in return shape, shape our perception and our desire. So for instance, if you ask a little girl today, 12 years old, to tell what, what exactly is her sex, she would refer to her vagina. Vagina is the word that comes first as being the entire <laughs> uh, female uh, sexual organ, right? Well, no, it's a vulva. There is a clitoris in there. Hello. You know, it's just, so it, we're still at that level, very much so. And, and for instance, I, I hear like I should refer to the work done by a friend of mine called Maya Mazoret. She writes regularly, you would find it very interesting in Le Monde, some articles about sex and sexuality. Uh, lately, she wrote about the word circlusion, which is the action of surrounding, of wrapping with the inner muscles or tissues of an orifice, 
a penis, for instance, right? So here you have a change of perspective between who is active. Now it's not, oh, I'm going to penetrate. It's not, I'm going to be circlusing you. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I like so, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all this work that has to be done on, on words as well, on the language we use. And, and, and that should be made just more open in school, I think, really. And it should be accompanied by more of, I would say, a sociological approach. And I think kids would be extremely, I am sure, kids would be extremely interested. It's not going to be a problem to interest them in that. But what's going to be challenging is to change these conceptions where, I mean, I don't know if you remember at our generation, obviously, probably even worse before, and, but still very much problematic today. A young girl or even a girl or a woman who has multiple sexual partners is going to be a whore, right? And a man who has multiple sexual partners is going to be a donjon, a great, uh, you know, beautiful stud, right? So I think that very discrepancy is at the core of all the problems that should be addressed in terms of this normativity that we need to work on and probably to, to, to enforce in a way, sadly. It's, it's, it's sad. You cannot, again, you cannot escape normativity. And I think at some point when I speak about education, it's a form of normativity as well. It's saying, well, it's not only descriptive. You're saying something about what should or should not be done, right? And that would have to do with, for instance, not seeing women as just, you know, if they have a sexual appetite as... Just people with sexual appetites. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, why don't you just call them like that? <laughs> Female studs, whatever they want. Yeah. And I think that does start to bring into question, you know, how do we actually determine the boundaries of what constitutes appropriateness when it comes to to a taboo and and how should we actually create those boundaries? Who creates those boundaries? Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Well, there is something, that, first of all, there is a remark that I want to make in regard to modesty and these boundaries that you're talking about. Even people who live naked tend to actually have sex hidden. Even for the Greeks who have, you know, the reputation of being very open-minded regarding sexuality and translation, they were not allowed to masturbate in the public space. Diogenes was actually blamed for that. And, you know, you, you just can't do that. So here, I think there should be a certain form of intimacy that should be preserved. But I do not want to say that we shouldn't talk about sex. I am not saying that you should be shameful when we talk about sex. And speaking actually about the diversity of sexual preferences can only help minorities to be better understood, etc. But what I say, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one, is first that we shouldn't be naive when we talk about sexual freedom, right, and liberation. And second, that I find it a bit disturbing that we can and should talk about sex as if it was just any insignificant subject. I'm absolutely promoting a wider understanding of sexuality. If not, why on earth would I even have a conversation with you right now? You know, <laughs> I'll do some research. But the simple banalization of the discourse, the trivialization of the topic, seems to be to, to, to miss the very object we try to discuss, an object that is intimate, complex, personal, extremely diverse. So by trivializing, I think we risk to promote one mainstream way of looking at sex without doing really justice to the complexity of the norms that are involved in sexuality, right? And can you just unpack what you mean by the trivialization of, of the conversation a little bit? Right. So, for instance, the fact that, you know, you're in conversation with friends, uh, you know, we're all having a drink or something, 
and we are asked to speak about, you know, to speak about sex and to just talk about it as if it was just any normal topic. And while I think it can be very helpful to make it a topic and to not be afraid to talk about it, I don't think it should be enforced to just make the conversation public at any cost, right? So it actually makes us forget how intimacy and, and secrecy and maybe opacity might be at the very core also of sexual desire. Precisely, we might, there are some fantasies that we don't want or need to share with everyone that we don't even want to enact in real life, right? And we can, we can have our little private pornographic library. We don't have to share it with everyone, first of all, right? But we, we also are not forced to just find it okay to be speaking about that as if it was just, you know, speaking about something so trivial and, and, and interesting. Yes, it is very interesting. Yes, it is a strong thing. And I think it's, you know, that echoes more of a general criticism in regards to the commodification of sexuality in the way it's happening in society today, where, you know, it needs to be immediate. It's, it's very narcissistic. It's not about, you know, encountering really another body, but it's just about quantifying, you know, satisfaction, etc. with apps that sometimes don't help really people to, uh, to, even if they might on certain, you know, apps that are really meant to have sexual encounters, people might find a certain kind of freedom, perhaps, but I'm afraid it might be a very superficial one in the sense that they are, you know, submitting themselves to certain very, again, heavy norms that are built in this society and need to be deconstructed. I love that because I often find when I get into conversations with people about this, you can you can get to a point where you're kind of accused of being frigid or close-minded or almost that you're not accepting a person's openness and they're not really willing to accept what you're trying to articulate in terms of the fact that, you know, you look at things like OnlyFans. That is a fundamentally narcissistic exercise and in the way that a lot of dating apps are as well. So I think that's a really interesting point around the commodification of sex and sort of the impact that that has had in in really quite a subversive way on the way people are interacting with it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. This is actually a whole other topic. There is a great book. I might send you a list of references for, you know, your your audience if they're if they're interested in some books about that. But there is a great, uh, a great book by, uh, by Badiou about this and by, by also uh, Byung Shul Han, who speaks about this need for alterity in order for desire to even exist. And the problem with today's society is that this alterity doesn't exist anymore. We want immediacy and we are not willing to just risk uncertainty somehow and, and take the risk of, yes, being discovering somebody entirely different. Yeah, and, and try that instead of just looking for people who are going to satisfy what we need and then just not trying to share that to really encounter someone. But that's another debate that has more to do with love, I would say, which is a topic that I explore uh, in, uh, in two last uh, episodes of my podcast as well. But it's, it's, it's slightly different from what we are discussing right here. But I do think it's interesting that a lot of conversations around sex and sexuality, they're not conversations around love and often intimacy and and things like that. So they're linked and probably should be spoken about more within within this space, I think. 
Yeah, you're almost, you know, old-fashioned somehow if you link sex with love. I don't think they should always be linked. I'm absolutely open to the idea of casual sex, obviously, but not open to the idea that it should only be that. And why not leave still the door open for the possibility of actual intimacy that, that means something on another level than the pure physiological level, so to say. Yeah. If we've got this kind of normativity that society is subject to and we're sort of bouncing between these really binary ends of a of the normativity spectrum what do you see as being the the solution to kind of being able to hold space for the complexity of taboo within society Alors first of all we need to differentiate between several types of taboos Where I think there should always be freedom for imagination, there is always a margin for for, for of freedom in our imagination, even if it's very much shaped and informed by a lot of conventions and cultural standards, right? I think, in a way, playing with certain transgression from a relatively puritanist way of looking at sexuality can be extremely, extremely stimulating. Now, does it mean that we should keep these taboos in place in order to uh, to make sure that sexual desire still exists? You see that there is a problem here. You can say, well, yeah, well, <laughs> we need to, re- to do, for it to remain a sin, right, if we want to taste the deliciousness of it, right? That is where it gets a bit, a bit complicated. Now, I think we don't have to worry too much about that because unfortunately i think those taboos are still very much here no matter how much we try to to look very open minded and liberal about sex those taboos are still very much here and we can play with them and being playful with them should be something that we're able to do in bed but also just in our minds and then what what's what interests me more is this second wave of norms that now are norms that feminist people, just like I do, for instance, are self-imposing, where we are afraid of playing the advocate of the devil by allowing ourselves to be submissive, for instance, in the bedroom or something like that. And, and you feel guilty about it. And it's just, that is, to me, a very problematic thing. I'm not sure you know, exactly how we could solve it, but I think it would be just very weird to somehow denature how we feel It's so deeply rooted, which is why I'm speaking about education, even like in middle school, high school, right? I'm speaking about the need for education because I think these questions need to be really apprehended very early in life before the imaginative world of all these people is being polluted somehow, right, by, by other, uh, by, by mainstream, very sometimes humiliating scripts regarding women, right? So it's, it's complex to what, should we allow ourselves really to feel that and have like a separatist attitude where we say, well, it's okay, you know, this, there is the bedroom and there is my social and political life. Again, people like Dworkin or, uh, or McKinnon would say, no, unfortunately, this frontier is very porous, And whatever happens, you know, in the bedroom will transpire somehow in the, the, the social setting or the political setting. So it's, it's a worry that is, I think, uh, relevant to a certain extent, but it cannot be addressed in a coercive way in that way. It can only come through education, I think. Mm. No, I think it's an interesting point around how we educate adults, right? Children are one thing. 
<laughs> children are one thing. But yeah, it's also by having just more, yeah, maybe within companies, you know, having people come in and just explain things, but without adopting a counseling judgmental position, which is also a problem we're facing today, right? It's just if, if you tell people, no, you're not allowed to think like that. You're not allowed to fantasize about, you know, about a fellatio or about anal sex. I mean, why not? I just, it, so, you know, here, I mean, I'm taking just these examples. There are many others that can be, you know, more problematic, obviously. Uh, it, I, I think it's really in the way, the rhetorics we would use to actually formulate these problems. That's where it's going to be very, very important. As soon as we adopt an enforcing, pushy, and extremely guilt-inducing discourse, it's going to be counterproductive. And so I think it's very important to educate in a way where we're not shaming the person who doesn't know better than the mainstream porn that they've been watching all this time, right? And, and who can blame them? This is the only thing that's out there. You know, so therefore the, the utility, I think, for the type of discussion we're having right now and for more openness about really talking about sex, but not as if it was just anything, you know, not as if it was just, oh, yeah, oh, yesterday I did this, ha, 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 you know, just, no, not, not in that way, I would say. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes complete sense. One other question that is kind of coming up that I wanted to ask you is often people talk about how taboo can become fetishized. So for example, I've spoken with an African-American woman who has operated a lot in the kink community because being African-American can be perceived as a taboo of sorts, has then been fetishized and that's had a real impact in how she's interacted with the kink community. So sort of interested on, because obviously there's a range of different taboos that are coming into play. Their kink is taboo and obviously there's part of her identity that is perceived to be taboo. So what do you think is kind of the the interplay there? Because there are obviously some taboos that are sort of potentially harmful and others potentially not so much. I think there is a, a distinction that needs to be drawn between whatever is only remaining in the domain of the fantasy, so not being enacted upon, and what is actually being enacted upon. If, if you're being aroused by something, you're being aroused by something. You know, it's just, it, it, it's not something you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to press that button, you know, on, off. No, it just doesn't work this way, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But then there is this margin of maneuver that we have in the sense that we can decide to enact upon it or not, right? And so that is where I think fetishism that tends to have some potentially racist components like this is something, again, that should be speak, you know, should be spoken of. That's something that should be absolutely out there. It's also, you know, it, it reminds me this this debate that came uh, came out, I think, again regarding dating apps. If it was okay to be able to select the color of skin of uh, the person you wanted to date, right? And this is this is a very interesting question because, in a way, if you say yes, you are promoting somehow certain racist or race-based preferences that might be problematic, right? But if you say, yes, you should be able, or no, you should not be able to do that, then you are imposing somehow a dictature of taste that is just uh, not acceptable either. It's a very, very complex topic. And I think, again, it's not about finding real answers, 
because I don't think it's going to be that easy, but it's more about what is the form of the discourse we're going to have about it and how to make sure that the dialogue remains open with people who might very well have strongly, you know, a very, very strong opinions that differ radically, right? So I think that's, that's really where it's important to go back to a discussion where I'm sure some people are very strongly opinionated on the fact that it is racist. And some people will be like, no, I'm sorry. It's just like, I don't know, I'm not turned on by Asian people, you know, for instance. How do, what do you answer to that? Well, it's, it's complex. It's, uh, it's not something that we could, uh, I, I don't think we have the right to be saying right or wrong here. But we can definitely, again, maybe understand better where these types of fantasies or fetishes are coming from, what exactly triggered them. And maybe by knowing better their cause, the person who feels this kind of desires or feel this kind of preferences might at least be able to question them in a critical way and perhaps revisit them to the point where it might, uh, they might even disappear. I don't know. You know it's just, but at least be able to look and confront where they're coming from and from what maybe, you know, imperialist backgrounds they might be coming from, that is a very interesting thing to do anyway. And so that's part of the education program that I would love to implement. To implement yeah, schools, yeah. Right? I think it is interesting because, as you kind of alluded to before, the point that you're making can be misinterpreted <laughs> around yeah. the fact that, you know, all taboos should be maintained and are a good thing. Yeah, what I'm interested in is how we hold space for complexity because it is, as you say, very, very complex. And I don't think shaming anyone is going to get us anywhere better than where we currently are. Right, and it's not like all taboos should be maintained, but it's just saying what we do with these taboos might actually turn out to be a positive thing sometimes. It's, It's just, you know, being, again, not so... Manichaean about it being like it's it's either good or bad it's 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 more complex than that and and it's it's really worth exploring so I'm glad you give me the opportunity to do that (laughs) (laughs) no that's good and realizing also one thing that I'm realizing precisely you know uh, echoing what you just said regarding how misinterpretations are so easy to come about how having this type of discussion is going to be very hard and I'm very curious to know who else you're going to be able to invite and what kind of discourse they might have and how free themselves they're going to feel in regards to the fear of being judged wrongly for an opinion that might not be politically correct sometimes or that might not sound politically correct, right? But, but here I think the goal is just to, to dig deeper and to learn together and I think that's a great thing to be able to do. It's just, uh, there is always this risk where we always feel we're working on eggs somehow. It is this interesting thing. I mean, I think all I want to do is put the views out there and let people make up their own minds, which I think kind of gets to the heart of what we're talking about, that people aren't given the autonomy to decide for themselves where they sit on certain issues. We're very prescriptive in, in how we talk about our values and how we should live our lives now. And I don't think that that should necessarily be the case. I think there are boundaries that need to be adhered to. But thank you yeah. so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll definitely have a listen to your podcast as well. I'm curious. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for the time as well. Ciao, ciao. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a big thank you to my guest, Jean Proust. 
You can find Jean's podcast, Can You Fill It?, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find a list of recommended reading from Jean in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me and visit our site for tailored sex toys and personalized packs delivered to your door. Feel free to like or subscribe to the podcast. I'm Caroline Moreau Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho, who edited and wrote the music. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.